what is going on? I was at university a few weeks ago watching this, drunk with my friends. Now I just had a match with the MAGA and I'm on the same roster as Ric Flair. What is life right now? What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another edition of Out of Character with me, Ryan Satin. This week, we've got another awesome guest lined up. Two-time WWE champion, one-time Intercontinental champion. He's a former NXT champion and former two-time Raw Tag Team champion. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Drew McIntyre to the show. What's up, buddy? How are you? What's up, man? Thank you so much for doing this today. I appreciate it. No, thank you very much for having me. I'm not quite sure when this interview comes out, but you know, last night I had the match with Kofi Kingston on Raw on the 30th of June edition, and we went at each other hard. You can see the marks on my face. I don't know if everyone's watching the video right now, but man, Kofi and I have not some any significant matches in over 10 years since we feuded over the IC title, and as much as I've evolved... He's on another level right now. He's something else, Kofi. Yeah, it's crazy that you say that because when I was uh, prepping for this interview and doing research and watching some of your old matches, you know, it's it was funny for me because I was doing that yesterday and then I went into watching the Raw match. Uh, so it was cool for me to see your guys' progression over time. Uh, what do you think about Kofi Kingston as a competitor? I think he's incredible. Uh, he's always been incredible. I've known him since FCW. He's always had the passion, always had the talent. Um, unbelievable charisma, especially you know, since the New Day thing started, went to a whole other level. But, you know, you never truly know how good somebody is till you're in the ring with them. And I knew how good he was, but to get in the ring with him the past couple of weeks, man, he's just at a whole other level like that. You can produce some magic together and Kofi has magic. Yeah, I, you guys killed it. That match last night, I, I always love when we get a real main event like that, where it's like, you know, two guys getting a half hour to just beat the hell out of each other. And man, some of the stuff in that match, that, that uh, Future Shock DDT you did to him looked so brutal. When you spun him around first and then planted him with it, I was like, oh man, that looks like it would freaking hurt. So uh, yeah, you guys, had a, you guys had a banger last night. It was a great one. Thank you. I'm looking forward to seeing the show back. I haven't had a chance to watch it, but I heard there was a few great matches on the show, but I heard the way they built the match throughout the night was pretty cool too, aside you know, my interview and Kofi's interview, which I did see, I heard there were some packages throughout the show. So I love when they build a big match up and make it feel like a big match with such high stakes on the line. So I'm excited to see it back. Uh, do you go back and watch your matches afterwards, like immediately? Because I feel like I hear different things from different people. Some people don't want to watch any of their matches and some people have to watch their matches. I don't want to watch my matches or promos. <laughs> I hate watching myself back because I'm the, my own biggest critic, but I have to. It's the only way you're going to get better and, you watch yourself, you get frustrated with certain things, but it's the only way you're going to learn and improve is to watch yourself back. And I'm kind of curious where this mark in my face came from. I'm going to guess the super kick, but I'm curious to watch it back and see when it happens. Uh, A little you, memory of Kofi on my face. <laughs> <laughs> it is hard to do that, though. I mean, I have to, for this show, I have to go back and I have to watch it three times and edit clips from it and, you know, write an article from it, pull quotes from it, and I'm just sitting there dissecting my own work more than anything and i'm like why did i say that why did i do that why did i stumble right there so uh, it's got to be hard to go back and watch all your matches right away like that to make sure that you learn those lessons from it yeah, i mean it's the only way you're really going to improve and uh, you can take advice from you know more experienced people and you know individuals you respect in the same field and sometimes 
just sometimes the internet does have constructive criticism um, that you might look at and go, you know what, I agree with that, but you're your own worst critic and best critic, and you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't watch your work back and figure out where you can improve. Now, you are someone who is very hands-on with your character, especially since you've been champion and, and since you've come back to WWE, but how much of your real true self would you say there is in the Drew, Drew McIntyre character right now? Um, I always try to inject truth into Drew McIntyre because I am Drew McIntyre. When things started to work for me, I started clicking with the audience and getting genuine reactions from the WWE crowd for the first time and started getting some of the loudest reactions and the loudest reactions on house shows was because I just started relaxing. And the more I was the real Drew, the more they responded. So it is very important to me to always inject some kind of truth. Like no matter what storyline I'm in, no matter what, promo I'm doing, I got to find something that's real to me. So I believe in it. So if I believe it, the audience believes it. you know, for example, the interview, um, talking about Kofi last night, I wanted something real. And I was thinking about our differences. And I, I thought about, you know, Kofi mania and how he fights for his family, fights for his kids. And as I said in the interview, absolutely, of course he would. Um, that's what it's all about. Doing it for your family. But I did make a conscious decision with my wife a few years ago. No, let's hold off. Like she's a nurse practitioner. It's just getting in the field once to get her career going. She's a little bit younger than me. And I want to be the number one guy, which is a very busy schedule. And I see how difficult it is. Been away from your family. We made a decision. Let's hold off right now. We'll do it when the time is right. The time's not right um, right now. And I wanted to put that in the promo and say I made a conscious decision to dedicate every minute, every hour, every second to this industry, to the title, to my profession. And that included holding off and having a family. And I thought it was important to inject that truth just to show the difference between Kofi and I, that I'm not judging, that I think that's awesome if that is your life, but I made a conscious decision to focus on my career first and foremost. Do you think that, like, is that because this is what's the mo most important thing to you right now and you don't want something to kind of, like, detract from that? Like, you still have goals that you want to do in WWE first before you focus on something else like a child? Um, I mean, I see guys are able to do both. Um, and I know, like and I've heard from everybody, your life changes and you're able to, you know, maintain both. But it's, it's a combination. It's not just me making this decision. I'm not doing it right now. My wife and I have sat down and talked about it. And we think it's best for our future right now that I pursue my career, the level I want to pursue that, which is the top. And there is a difference in schedule being a WWE superstar, which is very busy. And then as Roman talks about the levels, when you're top of the card you have such responsibility and i want that responsibility and i've asked for that responsibility and i've worked for that responsibility um, and my wife herself as i say she's a nurse, nurse practitioner she's just getting into the field she wants to build her career so that's something we made a decision when it's time we're going to do that but right now it's about our careers now right now like i said you have such a firm grasp of your character but i want to go back to when you might have had a little bit less of a grasp on the Drew McIntyre character. I want to talk to you about when you first debuted in WWE, the night you debuted on WWE TV back in the day. I thought we were going to talk about 3MB, and I was about to say that was exactly me at the time. But <laughs> oh, we're going way back. <laughs> we'll get there, but I want to go even further back. I'm, I'm digging all the way back when you walked out with Dave Taylor. You've got this promo that you cut where you're a dual citizen. You've got, you've got this... <laughs> So yeah, I want to know what you know. What was the direction given to you on that night on how to portray the Drew McIntyre character? What it, what it looked like being over the top Scottish guy who's applied for dual citizenship and wants to hear the crowd chant USA. I didn't believe in it, didn't know what it meant, but 
I was 22. I'd been in America for three weeks. I was literally at university about six weeks prior to that in Scotland, dreaming about being in WWE. So you could have gave me anything. I would have said it. So I already had such a thick Scottish accent back then. You know, it's uh, softened now, but I hammed it up and I said, it'd be great to hear you all say USA. So if you don't know if you can say fat bastard, but that's what I sounded like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that takes me back. God, fat bastard takes me back. I watched Austin Powers recently and I was like, man, this movie is probably couldn't get away with Mike so Myers much. Myers is stuff. always playing these stereotypical <laughs> Scottish characters. He loves it. Fat <laughs> bastard, so I married an axe murderer. He does it all the time. Okay. Shrek. But wait, <laughs> wait, so you said you'd only been in the United States for three weeks at that point? If it wasn't three weeks, it was literally my fourth week in America. I remember Wade Barrett was getting uh, to WWE to OVW uh, three weeks after me. My first week that I arrived, the writers happened to be there that week. They needed a body to get in the ring and to look at one of the heels there. Um, so I got told, get your gear on, Drew, just get in the ring, be a body. So I rolled around with the talent that we're looking at. I cut a little promo afterwards, never thought anything of it. And then the following week, I got the call from Howard Finkel. He used to call talent on the road, telling me, you know, Drew, this is Howard Finkel with the World Wrestling Entertainment. I was like, clearly, this is Howard Finkel with World Wrestling Entertainment when I heard his voice. And he told me I was going to be on the road. And I just was assuming this is perfectly normal. I've been in the country like a week or two. So that's just fine. And then I spoke to the trainer, Al Snow, and some of the talent, Paul Burchill, who I go way back with uh, to the UK, who was in OVW at the time. They told me, Drew, this is not normal. The writers never come here, maybe once every six months or even longer. And they're bringing you on the road right away. So you're probably going to get some heat. And sure enough, people acted a little funny around me <laughs> after that. But yeah, I was debuting on TV uh, the following week. Wade just arrived to the country and I was already on SmackDown. Did you rub that in his face a little? Like, hey, look at me. I'm already on the show. Of course, of course. I rub it in his face to this day. <laughs> like, I was the first British champion, pal. Should have been you, but it was this guy. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, was that, so then that was your first time in a WWE locker room then? Like, in, on, actual WWE TV, not developmental or whatever? Yeah. I mean, like, at the tryouts, we had two tryouts, myself, Seamus, Wade Barrett, and we changed in a closet, so we weren't actually in the WWE locker room. But my first time in the locker room, um, I was on the road right away. Um, I was with the Raw crew first before I debuted with SmackDown. And I remember sitting in the locker room. I had a dark match that night with Omega. Um, I've told this story before. It's in my book. Um, the Usos were there with Omega. Vince asked them to do a uh, dark match, which he wasn't thrilled about. I know he's been there for a long time, but they really wanted to have a look at me. And he decided to play a rib on me. So he told the Usos who weren't signed at the time, I'm going to mess with this kid today. So every time I tried to approach him to talk about the match, he was like, yeah, 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 we'll, we'll get together, we'll get with you. So I'm terrified, just freaking all day. I know he was sitting, just trying to get about his business. He'd see my head pop around a corner, <laughs> just stalking him all day long. But he was messing with me, messing with me. And then finally, um, we had a nice little dart match. And after that, I debuted. But um, the locker room, I remember after the match, I am sitting down, just going, that's so surreal. I can't believe I had that match. I can't believe he did so much for me. In that match, and I looked up and I saw Ric Flair walk past me in his gear because he was still an active roster member. <laughs> roster member, and I looked around and went, "What is going on?" I was at university a few weeks ago watching this, drunk with my friends. Now I just did a match with the MAGA, and I'm on the same roster as Ric Flair. What is life right now? That's like such a crazy extreme, like to go from watching it with your buddies and suddenly being in the locker room with Ric Flair. I mean, I can't even imagine 
what that's like for you as a performer of like, all right, well, it's showtime now. Like I am here and I have to, I have to play, you know? So that, that, that must've been hard to, to deal with right away. Yeah. I mean, it was just a whirlwind. I was trying to just go with the flow. I was incredibly homesick. I missed my family a lot at that point, but wrestling was the one thing I knew I was trying to go with the flow. And I just kept telling myself, this is normal. And that's the theme of my life, my career, my book. Um, I always say like, I guess this is normal. Like, but it's not half the time. Like it was such a wild ride from being on the road so quickly. And then we'll get into the, the other stuff of Mr. McMahon's chosen one, et cetera. And I kept telling myself, this is normal. As everyone around me told me, this is not normal. <laughs> I just tried to pretend it was normal the whole time. Uh, you talked about uh, there be, you know, people warning you that there might be some heat in the locker room for you getting called up so quickly. Was there, like, was it tough to make friends with people right away? Um, I mean, a lot of people were uh, nice to me. I think it helped being with Dave Taylor. I mean, I know it helped being with Dave Taylor because uh, I saw some of the other younger talent getting a hard time. And the locker room now is so, so different back then. You know, a little bit of hazing um, and the likes. But being with Dave, I, I think, kind of protected me. And I, the group I was with initially, this is my, my drinking crew, I guess, when I was 22 and I was first on the road, was uh, Dave Taylor, JBL, uh, Festus, and Mike Knox. If anyone knows anything about those guys, they can throw a few back. So that was quite a crew for me to be with in the beginning. I learned a whole lot just listening to them, but thank goodness I came straight from university and I'm Scottish. I was able to keep up with them. <laughs> yeah, that seems like a, a tough crew to hang with in terms of like, you gotta, you gotta be a drinker right there for sure. Yes, yes you do. <laughs> uh, you talk about your book. What inspired you to write a book? You know, I just thought one day, you know what the world needs right now is the Scottish wrestler from WWE to write a book. No, that's not how it went down. Um, <laughs> I was approached with the idea. Um, I was an outside company, I believe, came to WWE. <clears throat> and then they brought me the idea that, you know, Drew, you're so open about your story. Um, you know, all the ups and downs you've been through, all the lessons you've learned, uh, be it on the, you know, flagship show Monday Night Raw or uh, be it on interviews, especially like we're doing right now. I'm, I'm always the real Drew. I always talk about my story. I'm always open, never afraid to hold back. And we feel that you can help a lot of people through your story. So I had to think about it, talk to the missus about it and said, all right, if we're going to do this, I want to write it, not just for wrestling fans. I want everyone to be able to pick it up and read it. And I'm not going to hold back. You know, it's not going to be easy going into some of the stories, but I want to just tell it as it is and if anybody can read about some of my dark times when I was not just a rock bomb 10 feet below rock bomb I had to take myself back to rock bomb and it can help them what they're going through to know no matter how dark their time is there's a light at the end of the tunnel and then that's what it's all about so that was the mindset going into it that hopefully someone can pick up this book take a little bit of inspiration and chase their goals and dreams and it doesn't have to just be WWE champion like mine it could be literally anything like an office promotion what was the hardest thing for you to reveal about yourself in the book I mean, I've been in the public eye, like the majority of my life, there's nothing that people don't know or they know some lie version of or some screwy version of it. So most of the truth is in the book here. But the hardest stuff to talk about was the personal stuff and especially talking about my mom getting sick. And, you know, that's why, you know, my career took such a downturn during the, the first half of it. Um, I was keeping it private, not realizing how difficult it was. And when she inevitably passed, like how difficult that was. So really got into that, reliving that again. It was very difficult to talk about. But again, there's other people out there going through that stuff. And if they can 
learn how maybe not to deal with it and try to deal with their emotions better and use their support system like I didn't at the time, then again, that's what it's all about in the book, helping people out. When you had the stuff with Dave Taylor and it ended up not working out and they moved you back to developmental, was that hard for you or did you relish in the opportunity to get more training from seasoned veterans? I almost did a backflip, I was so happy. I knew I needed to uh, get some time in developmental, like my first match um, with uh, Zack Ryder, or uh, with the major brothers at the time. Um, I was in the ring, I grabbed a hold, the referee told me, work the hard camera on a live SmackDown. I turned to him and said, what is a hard camera? I had no idea, it's so much to learn. <laughs> like I knew, I told John Laurinaitis, who was head of talent relations, once again, head of talent relations, you know, I need some more time. And we kept him on the road for six months for the duration of OBW to learn as much as I could. During that period, wrestling guys like JBL and Regal, et cetera, on the house shows to improve my in-ring game, but I had so much to learn. And when he told me, you know, we're closing down OBW, everyone's moving to Florida for Florida Championship Wrestling. I know how cool it was because I was talking to Seamus all the time, hearing about it. I was like, thank you, Johnny. I cannot wait. This is exactly what I need. Sometimes you have to take two steps back to take three steps forward. And I knew that was the case. When I got to Florida, it was like, going from black and white of OVW and not OVW specifically, more Louisville to color of Tampa and FCW. Which trainers helped you out the most at FCW? All of them. It was like a dream team in FCW uh, with Steve Kerr and Dr. Tom, Norman Smiley, Billy Kidman, Dusty Rhodes with the promos. Like if you can't learn um, this industry there and figure it out, you're never going to figure it out. Like, we were so fortunate to have those guys. Every single one of them were so good at what they did. Um, if anybody's frustrated with my stiffer style in the ring, you can blame Steve, <laughs> blame Steve Kern. Like, he saw something in me when it came to the aggression and dialed me up to about a 20. And they put me with Fit Finley for three months when I was back on the road to dial me back down to about a 12. <laughs> so if anyone's got any, gri any gripes about my stiffness in the ring, <laughs> blame Steve Kern. <laughs> well, then, when you returned to SmackDown in 2009, did you feel more prepared to make an impact that time around? Yeah, way more prepared. Um, I was confident in that I knew the style a little better. Um, it's like, again, I came from the European style with no TV cameras, and I was more comfortable playing to the cameras. And number one, working with Dusty Rhodes, I was more comfortable having a microphone in my hands. And it took a lot of years to get to where I'm at right now and be the person I am in the microphone today where I'm legitimately 100% comfortable, but because of Dusty, I was able to take the mic, be confident and portray a character that maybe wasn't the real me, but pull it off somewhat. Is there any specific advice that Dusty gave you that you've held on to that's helped you out with getting better at promos over the years? Yeah, he was trying to tell me at the time what I talk about now and emphasize now, it just took so long for me to actually start applying it, was just finding the truth in the situations like not playing the character you've got to believe it like he but he's he was dusty Rhodes 100 percent of the time even in his real life he was just always dusty Rhodes, and he believed it 100 percent. and the audience believed it and they believed in him and went along with everything he said and because he knew his character and what he was putting out there came from a truthful place and he tried to put that into me and i again i took so much from him i was confident but it took years till i started implementing lessons from guys like dusty Rhodes and the undertaker that i heard when i was younger and the light switch went off one day and i was like oh my goodness this is what they were telling me all that time and it's just now i really truly get it and i can apply it do you think that some of the younger wrestlers could learn from that a little bit to try and be their character 24 7 as opposed to you know, dropping it when they're on social media for various reasons? 
because it depends on your character. <laughs> if you're an outrageous character, man, I will love your life that way. <laughs> but uh, I'd say at least what you're, what you're putting out to the public, uh, I would try. Like, it's not like a movie. Uh, we're 20, like 52 weeks a year. There's no reruns, no off-season in WWE. Like, try your best to make people believe, like, what I see on screen is the real person. Like, when, when I see the Corbin or whatever, like, I do think, like, Man, this is a terrible guy. And I know him in real life and I can say some nice things about him, but I won't. But I think he does a good job of portraying himself as a heel. And I remember I pitched to him recently. I was like, man, we do all these chronicles that are like so inspiring. And you know, we tell my true story and what I had to deal with. And every talent, I see one of their chronicles that are 24s and you feel good about them, even though they're supposed to be a bad guy. And I was like, oh man, it's a great story. But I don't know if it helps him as a bad guy. What you need to pitch is a chronicle where you've just always been amazing. Just the younger, everything just worked out for me. And then I was just great at football. I was great at boxing. And then I did NFL and then I did WWE. And then your family are talking about you and just kind of being like, yeah, man, it's kind of hard to deal with. But yeah, it was good at stuff. Your family are kind of burying you and everyone's talking about the crappy guy you are. And that's your chronicle. And just go full like heel because nobody believes in the characters 100% these days. And I would love for him to do something like that. Yeah, I would also love that because I say the same thing I, when I when I look at him on social media, I always think to myself like, God, this character or sorry, him as a person might even be more heelish than him as the character on TV with some of the things that you see him doing, like just just everything that he does is like, you know, kind of digging into people. And I love it. So I would I would love to see him get a, a documentary on how much of a heel he actually is. <laughs> uh, well, prepping for this interview. I saw some matches of yours listed from that year when you came back in 09, where you wrestled against uh, Ricky Steamboat on multiple house shows. These are actually some of his final matches when I was looking on Cage Match and looking at the listings. Was that cool for you to get to wrestle Ricky Steamboat in some of his final matches? Yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it was absolute insanity. Like, he, he they only had a few matches, as you mentioned. It was basically myself and Jericho, you know, had a couple of matches each with them and that's just insane to to think of um one of them i remember being in the ring and it was at one of the tent shows we used to do in the new york area and it's a sold out crowd but it was a limited crowd maybe like a thousand people or whatever there he was just so cool calm collected i don't take arm drags also like i've never been like one to take a good arm drag i always go over awkwardly it never looks good so i always told tell people i do not take arm drags when i was wrestling ricky steamboat i was taking freaking arm drags <laughs> the best arm drags of my life and uh i remember at fcw one time about a year or two later after i wrestled hey ricky uh, i was with his son and i made a joke we're wrestling that night i remember back in the day when i used to wrestle your dad it was literally the year before but <laughs> it's a good time grizzled vet over here me and me and steamboat back in the day you know going 60. oh yeah <laughs> well, these days i'm about as grizzled as you get as you can see <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy to me that there's no footage of these matches online anywhere like i look there's like i think you guys wrestled like five six seven matches something like that and even on youtube there's only like footage of your promo where you're talking about, I don't care who this surprise opponent's going to be. I'm going to kick their ass anyways. And then, you know, Ricky Steamboat's entrance and the crowd going crazy beforehand. What did you learn most from him in those matches, getting to mix it up with a legend like Ricky Steamboat in the ring like that? Like I just mentioned, uh, relax. Like he was just so, so relaxed. It really took me uh, back just like being in like certain situations where you probably shouldn't be relaxed with this young kids trying to turn you into a pretzel and being overly stiff but he was just so relaxed then his demeanor and the way he was when he was out there and the crowd were so with him 
because he was so in the moment, so present with them. And I was thinking so much about not messing up and like in my own little bubble that that's what they were, why they weren't responding to me. And it took me again a long time to figure that out. And this is a lesson the Undertaker told me, stop playing the wrestler and be the wrestler. I was out there so concerned about like the things I might do and not messing up. If you looked at my eyes, you can see I'm just not in the moment. I'm not present. I'm not part of this match. And it's very obvious. And it was very obvious to the crowd that Ricky was relaxed. He was part of it. He believed in himself. So they believed in him. When you, you mentioned earlier the Chosen One promo from Vince McMahon, had you had many interactions with him prior to that? Uh, a couple. Um, the first one was about my first day on the road. I sang catering, and I remember he sat in front of me, and I panicked, introduced myself, and um, you know who I was, gave me some advice. I mumbled some stuff in my very thick Scottish accent, especially back then. He stood up, nodded, walked off, and I thought, I just messed up my whole WWE career. Vince Man just didn't understand a word I said. So that was like when I was about 22. And then uh, when I was about to come up from FCW, and I remember the character, and maybe some people have heard this or they haven't, the character pitch was I was going to be the runway man, detailed in the book again, where I was going to be a male model. I think this is what became a Fandango eventually. It was kind of modified. But uh, yeah, I was going to be have a catwalk and walk to the ring as a male model. And yeah, it was a whole thing. And I was like, all right, I'll make it work. Cool. So it was pitched to me. I was working on stuff. Uh, I was 265 when I was tagging with Wade in FCW. And I leaned down to the size I was at Chosen One, which was about 230. I was getting ready to be a male model. And then I went to TV. I had my sit down with Vince. I made it clear. I didn't love it, but I'll make it work. You know, whatever you think is best, hey, I'm going to do it. Thankfully, he did not feel it was best and just kind of let me be <laughs> myself and did the chosen one thing, but I was almost the runway man. So, yeah, we had a few interactions prior that were very interesting. How much of a relief was that to go from the runway man where you were going to be a male model, you're going to be Zoolander on WWE TV, to being like the chosen one? I, I feel like that had to be such huge extremes that you went through right there. That's yeah, basically the same thing. <laughs> 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 well, when you won the Intercontinental Championship for the first time, what was the thing you learned most from holding gold for your very first time in WWE? <sighs> yeah, I'm, I can I still remember the night where I won it. And there's a cool picture um, when I won the title and I'm looking at the title and it captured just how I was feeling in that moment, which was, what the heck is going on right now? Like, everything's going to plan, like, we too much to plan exactly how I envisioned it as a child. Like you're going to go to WWE, you're going to win the IC title, like Brett and Shaw, and then you're going to win the world title. Like this is so insane. And then later that night on the same pay-per-view, Sheamus won the world title. And I remember like, both of us just sitting down in the hotel afterwards. We used to feud together all throughout Europe, that signed together, best friends. And we're just looking at each other like, what is going on right now? This is just absolutely bizarre. <laughs> um, but I guess like, what I learned during it was that as IC champion, you get the opportunity to get significant TV time, significant match time, or that was generally regarded as the workers' title at the time. You know, I believe Dolph and Rey Mysterio and the likes were, and John Morrison were holding it around that time. So I wanted to, you know, keep to that standard, ensure that I got the match time and had the matches of that quality. And at the same time, I was getting that interview time and trying to build that character. Was it tough to go from that 
you know, you had, you, you were, like you said, everything was going to plan. You got the IC title, you had Vince calling you the chosen one. But I feel like after that, you kind of, once you lost the Intercontinental title, you were kind of muddling around for a few years without as much direction. Was it difficult to go to that after you thought everything was finally going in the right direction for you? Yes, and I remember it was Kofi Kingston who beat me for the title and Teddy Long counted to three and then everything went to hell and then I got my revenge on Kofi last night. <laughs> it's been a long time coming. It's part of my master plan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only joking. Um, yeah, I mean, afterwards it was a lot frustrating because I was just spinning my wheels and we had no story going, which was even at that age, I understood that you have to be constantly involved in the character. You have to be involved in stories. I, like, I was just like, I don't, I don't even care about the matches right now. I just have to get in a story. And I wasn't. And it just, more time passed, more time passed. And suddenly I was on Superstars every week. And I was trying to have the best matches I possibly could. I literally had the mentality of, I'm going to have such a good match where I can't follow. And that's what was in my head. I remember Christian, I literally said those words. And Christian is so freaking good. We had a long match, thanks to him. It was really good, like trying our best to make sure the crowd were dead for sure. That's where I was at at the time, so frustrated. I mean, you had somebody like Christian out there who's so talented. I went through that phase of, I'll totally show them. I'm going to blow them away with these matches and they'll have to put me on Raw, but it never happened. And eventually that led to 3MB. I'm sure we're going to get into it in a second. And I'll say right away, People say you must have been frustrated and so annoyed when you got pitched to you, but because of that period of doing nothing for so long and being on superstars and time just passing and passing since the chosen one, I was just happy to get a storyline of some kind. Yeah, I mean, that is, I was going to ask if you viewed it as a good or bad thing because I had a feeling that was going to be the case because at some point you just want to be on TV doing stuff, you know, and 3MB was at least on TV in angle, like doing stuff on the shows. Yeah. And that's why I was so happy. I believe the writers, it sounded like the Drew Straws who was going to tell me. Like they told Heath, you're getting a band. They told Jinder in the hallway. And somebody had to walk me to the stands because they thought I was going to freak out and kick their ass or something. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a hothead when I was younger. <laughs> but, but yeah, my reaction was, cool. Um, I just want to be in something. They explained it to me. They said Vince was into it. They pitched, you know, band members. They thought would be more logical. Like Dean Ambrose was a suggestion at the time. And Fandango and kind of guys that maybe would have the personality to be in like a band and Jinder and I are such serious characters. Vince went, no, I want Jinder and Drew. I want to see a different side of the personality. And he was all about it. I don't think he knew that I had a broken wrist at the time and it wasn't healing. And uh, we got going, we got the vignettes sorted, did the first week of TV and they did an MRI. And turns out I needed to get a screw in there to fuse the bone. And that pretty much killed us right away. Like our, our heater, I guess that was me at the time was out for six months, couldn't touch anyone or be touched. I stayed on the road, I was on TV, but yeah, the attention certainly went off the MB we were losing for a while. <laughs> I also feel like not- We enough- to enjoy it though. We always get such good reactions. That's what blew my mind. Like no matter like what mad stuff we were doing or how short the matches were, especially in the house shows, like we got such wild reactions. That's why it was such a surprise when I got the release call <laughs> because I was like, oh, okay. It's kind of surprising because we're on literally everything. We're getting such good reactions because you do need that comment relief as part of your show. Have you ever talked to Vince about that release and just and asked like what the mindset was in that? Like if they thought you needed a, a kick in the ass to a certain degree to like go change yourself. Is there anything like if they ever talked to you? Has anyone ever talked about their mindset when they let you go that time and what they wanted to see from you? Not in those words. I know myself. I had to be outside the company to get perspective and find myself. And 
Um, I don't think any of us need to say the words that it was the right move to make. If I was ever going to find my potential, they're going to have to set me free and either I would sink or swim and find my way back home or not. Also, if you had never done 3MB, we would have never seen the WLC match. And the WLC match was a classic match that people, that I look back on very fondly. So, um, and you got to be ringside for it. So I'm sure that was fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And again, like the mentality was just like I mentioned earlier with the superstars matches. And I can't remember, I was with Swaggo the night before. And I told him, so your mindset should be, everyone wants to laugh at this. They want it to be a big joke. It will obviously have a comic element, but you should go out there and just steal the show and have everyone talking about it. He was all about it. Torito can do such crazy things. And uh, I spoke to you know Jinder and um, the other lads, Colognes, and we all said we're willing to take some mad bumps to make this match as special as possible. So everybody was all in on making sure that when the laughter turned to cheers, turned to what just happened, they just stole the show in the pre-show and I could hear the crowd. That was my favorite part. I'm always listening to the crowd, especially these days when, when we have them, when we get them back, especially. But, you know, I've got like a, an, a good ear for listening to the crowd these days. So I can't wait to get back to these live events. But um, I was listening to the crowd and they were laughing. They were like, this is such a joke. This is going to be whatever. It'll be over in two minutes. And by the end, they were on their feet going freaking crazy. That's my favorite thing. When when fans are not expecting anything from a match. And by the time it's over, they're just on their feet, so invested. Like, that's when you know the two guys in the ring or whoever many people are in the ring uh, really did their job. And that, man, that WLC match... They it, it for sure stole the show. I don't even remember the other matches that were on that card. The, the WLC match was that show. Absolutely. There's one match that I remember. You mentioned it about like the crowd. I mean, the crowd weren't not expecting a good match. Um, but being on their feet at the end, I remember there's that picture of you um, at the PWG show when I first showed up. And I remember the first night knowing, like, when I was out in the independence, this is the who's who of independent wrestle, the best of the best. You know, they were like, oh, there's Drew, cool to see him whatever former WWE guy but I knew in my head like this is my chance to show everybody what I can do in the ring and you don't generally have like bigger stature guys there aside like a Chris Hero so I was like I'm going to show everybody something right now and by the end of that match was one of the coolest moments of my career when everybody was up doing the please come back chant at the end of it I just remember that picture of you on your feet as the one person on his feet as I was walking around the ring my producer is going to be so mad at me that I didn't send him that picture but Davis just so you know I don't know whose photo that is so that's why I didn't ask to put it on the wall uh, but yeah it's great there's a photo there's a photo of me at PWG where uh, to, to explain what Drew's talking about where he's walking out for his first PWG match and he's getting kind of a lukewarm reaction people are all kind of still sitting down giving him one of these and i'm the only one because i'm a huge drew mcintyre fan i'm a little drunk too and i'm holding up my one cup for for drew as he's walking out and he's got a real serious look on his face but yeah like you said by the end man that crowd was on their feet they were so hyped on that match and i just feel like the way that you were able to turn their perception of you is exactly why your run on the indies was so successful because you really did such a great job at changing people's perception of you from the jump Thank you. That was what it was all about. Like my wife and I put together this mission statement of like what I was going to do, but to see it all come off um, was really incredible. To get such opportunities, people believing in me, giving me a platform to show what I could really do meant the world to me. Because at first, as I talk about in the book, like I wasn't just Mr. Confident going out there and taking the world by storm. Like I hadn't wrestled in a long time. I was part of 3MB. And I was like, man, can I really do this at the level I think I can? And there was a lot of faking it till I made it, till that confidence grew and I became the man I am today. 
Um, so it was really cool to get those opportunities and hear those reactions and build that confidence throughout that time, but also at the same time, build the scene. Like that 2014 to 2017 period of independent wrestling was just unbelievable to be part of it and watch it grow and to be like in Scotland, for example, my home company there, we took the crowds from 1,500 when I got back initially to 2,000 to 4,000 to 7,000. And I was like, man, this is incredible to be doing this outside of WWE, my name really means something here and that was like kind of the time I started getting the thoughts I was going to go back no matter what to WWE but I really want to go back because WWE sells the product the name sells the product but my name is selling the product right now and that was such a special time for wrestling well who first called you and contacted you about coming back to NXT and were you were you hesitant at all um, I mean, at the time, my uh, contract with Impact had lapsed and new management was coming in. My wife and I decided, you know, we were going to go a different direction. And I assumed that Japan was where I was going to end up. <clears throat> and I spoke to a couple of the talent um, that were with New Japan. That seemed like the logical choice, for, especially the way it wrestled. And um, I think it was Mike Johnson um, had wrote an article online just kind of talking about my career and talking about how my contract was up. And I think William Regal had saw that and he contacted me. Regal's always been a mentor of mine, always kept tabs on me and told me, hey, before you make any decisions about your future, you know, take a call with Triple H um, because you've been doing really well. You know, I think it might be time. And I was like, okay, I'll speak to him. But I wasn't going into the call like, oh my goodness, here we go, I'm coming back. Now we spoke on the phone for the first time really as two grown men because I was such a boy and thought as a boy and acted like a boy. During my first run, I was so intimidated around him, I couldn't have a real conversation. We had a just grown-up conversation, and we talked about everything, and he talked about, you know, he's been watching me the whole time, was proud of not just what I achieved as a wrestler and how far I'd come, but more how I'd grown up as a man and a businessman, and it was time to come back. And I said, pretty bluntly, it has to be NXT. Like, that's somewhere where the crowd know what I'm all about now, that I can help the other talent as a more experienced guy, and it's kind of where I feel I should be, it feels right. And I want to prove myself uh, right away and just work my way straight to the WWE title. And that was his mindset as well. But after that call with Hunter, I knew it was time to come back. How much input did you have on your character when you did come back? Was that something that you were fully involved in at that time? Like, because you had been so involved on the indies with it? Yeah, um, it was great. Um, and such a, a difference, I guess. It was more of a confidence thing for me, I guess. Like, I knew who I was, and it's very much a back and forth. It's not a case of them telling me, you have to do this, or me saying, no, this is who I am. It becomes a collaboration, and that's what it's all about. Did you feel like you had something to prove as champion once you beat Bobby Roode for the title? Um, yeah, I mean, I was excited to be champion, but um, I wanted to show that I could be um, a top-level main event performer. Um, they can carry a brand. I guess that was what my mindset was at the time. And we are, we, was, I'd become from the, you know, super independent shows anyway. But if you look at an NXT show, like the matches are on prior to the last match, and it was the same on the indie shows, the same guys basically the Ricochets, the Roddy Strongs, the Johnny Garganos that are on before you. And you're like, man, they're really good. I got to follow this. <laughs> so thankfully, I had that experience outside of the company of following talent of that caliber in the ring that I was confident when I got the title that, okay. I can do my job in the ring, I'm different, but also I've got these other tools, uh, be on the microphone, how comfortable I am, and just knowing my character that I can carry the brand and prove to everyone in WWE that I can carry a brand. So everyone listening to- Short-lived, of course, my bicep fell off the bone. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, when did you find out- I still be champion to this day. <laughs> when did you find out after you got injured that you were gonna be moving to Raw? 
Um, once I was ready to come back. So it was like I right when you were cleared? Back to NXT. Yeah, I mean, I assumed I was coming back to NXT. Um, I was hoping for a little change of character just to kind of shock everybody and I spoke to a couple of people about some ideas. And then I got told, say I was at WrestleMania, I can't even tell you what number it was. Let's just say I was at the WrestleMania after I was hurt. And then I was told, you're go along to Raw tomorrow. I was like, okay, okay. So I'm at Raw, not thinking I'm debuting. And I got told, hey, you and Dolph are a team now. By Billy Kidman, going back to FCW. He was, hey, you and Dolph are a team now. Like, what? So no one had called me the night before. No writer contacted me. And so Kidman told me in the hallway, as he told Dolph, I think, I don't know if Dolph talked about it in the interview with you. He's talked about it in interviews in the past that we both just get told in the hallway and went, oh, so we're a team now. That's cool. <laughs> that seems to be a running theme with Dolph because he said the same thing with his team with Bobby Roode too. It was like, he showed up one day and it was like, you two are a team and he was like okay cool so yeah that, that was definitely a running yeah, theme yeah. with him it's the most successful tag teams generally in wwe <laughs> we got thrown together team i've won the titles twice you know with uh Dolph and cody just the most random teams thrown together <laughs> uh so everyone knows you came to raw you had a great run you eventually won the wwe championship um now, you've already talked a lot about your WrestleMania experience uh, last year because of the pandemic, but in retrospect, how do you feel overall about your 203-day reign as champion? Very proud of it. Uh, one of the proudest things I've ever done um, in wrestling, but just because it was such a unique time and we needed somebody to step up and be the champion and kind of carry the load and represent the company, not just on the show, but um during media um outside of the ring too and the, everyone i worked with during that period i was so fortunate to get the chance to get in the ring with i was fortunate to have the trust of trying new things in uncharted wars and throwing things against the wall and seeing what stuck I had the long feud with randy orton which taught me so so much you know, randy is so incredible and such a teacher and i knew okay here's my chance i'm against randy now i'm the champion and he's operating at another level right now. Like Randy, somehow, as good as he was, somehow went to another level during that edge feud. And I knew, okay, here's my chance to prove myself on the microphone in the ring. I got to step up, step up to Randy's level or I don't deserve to be champion. And I love that. I got to work with um, AJ for the one pay-per-view, which was awesome too. And I really enjoyed in that period as champion and really felt like I showed everyone, okay, Drew can be the guy um, in every aspect, not just on the show. And I'm excited to get that opportunity again with fans because I won the title with nobody there. I won the title back with a virtual audience there. So one of these days, I'll get the title with fans there. Well, I actually was going to say that, you know, you've got a title match coming up at Hell on a Cell against Bobby Lashley. And does the return of fans make you want to regain the title even more now because you can actually this time have a run in front of fans? Yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> I um, I said throughout all the media, like uh, throughout the pandemic, that I want to be the first person to walk out. And I talked about myself as champion so I can raise the title and go, woof, we're back. We did it. Um, it's awesome. Um, and I'm the first person that came out. And I got the chance to kind of do that at WrestleMania this past year. You know, I was the first person to walk out. I wasn't champion. And what a feeling uh, that was just to get that little tease of having the fans there. Um, and just coming out and in the back of my mind before I walked out thinking, man, you've been like in their face a lot for the past year. There's a lot of Drew content out there and our fans sometimes 
maybe turn on the flavor of the month or the flavor of the year, uh, especially if they've been very much in their face in every title match, etc. So that did go through my mind for a walk out, to hear all the cheers and stuff when I walked out and know this is working and to see their faces, how excited they were. That was such a cool feeling. And I didn't get my mania moment with fans. I'm still searching for that. So I'm hoping for that in the future. But yeah, I would love to win the title back from Lashley and walk out in front of the fans once we get back on the road as WWE champion. And if somehow he screws me out of it and he manages to keep the title, I will get my moment in front of the fans. It'll happen. It's definitely going to happen eventually. We got SummerSlam still. <laughs> Yes, yes, we do. <laughs> is it frustrating, though, for you to have your reign judged by fans because of those uncharted waters? And I feel like some our fan, the fan base can be a little harsh sometimes. They can be a little more critical than necessary. Um, is, it, is it hard to see some of the negative reactions sometimes because you're like, man, I'm doing the best I can in these uncharted waters. Like, give me a little bit of a break to a certain degree? No, I think these days, because of my journey, all the ups and downs, I'm so hardened uh, to criticism, but I never uh, worry about if it's constructive criticism. I appreciate constructive criticism, but people are just saying things to say things. It's just whatever. Um, and I understand, you know, some fans might be like, oh, I'd like a new fresh face in the picture. And uh, perhaps, like, realistically, I have been fighting for the title or been champion for over a year now, which is a pretty significant time, but I don't think anyone's saying, oh my goodness, Drew's not doing a good job or working as hard as he can to give us the best matches possible and do the best he can with every interview possible. I think it's more, I would like to see something different here and see Drew do something different um, over here. But again, it is a vocal minority, but I understand what they're saying at the same time. Absolutely, I totally agree with that. All right, closer time here. Uh, I usually end my interviews talking with my guest about their finishing move. I got a couple questions about it. For you, that's obviously the Claymore. So first, who is your favorite superstar to hit the Claymore on? That was Cedric Alexander. From Because of the way he sells Every it, time. which is flipping over three times when you Inside do it? Inside out. Yeah, and the last one we did in particular, the first time we did it, it's been replayed a million times. It was with the live fans there. Um, he took an incredible um, backflip bump with it. It looked spectacular. But this last one we did, it was so low to the ground when he went around. Like, for some reason in a bar, I ran and kicked someone in the face with a claymore. They would have spun like that. <laughs> that sounds like a terrible trip to the bar, getting kicked in the face like that. <laughs> uh, what's one time you hit the claymore that you wish you could take back for whatever reason? I wouldn't take back the first time I hit it because it was an accident and it's the reason I created the Claymore, but I knocked myself silly um, and it was completely an accident. I've told this story a few times, how I created the Claymore. I was wearing the 3MB pants, they're so tight. I've never worn them before. I ran to deliver a standing big boot and I realized the crotch was going to split down the middle. And live on TV, Scottish may or may not be wearing underpants. And I was like, oh man, my crotch is going to split. So I kicked up my other leg hit the kick and landed on my own head and knocked myself silly. And I got told in the back when I was still out of it, if you can figure out how to do that without hurting yourself, uh, you've got like a really cool move there. And that's where the Claymore came from. So I wouldn't take it back, but I wish I could do it without hitting my head. So finally. <laughs> and finally, what's the most memorable Claymore that you ever delivered? Gotta be Brock, Royal Rumble. Like I've never heard such a reaction in my life. And like, that's the night that and Drew McIntyre finally arrived in the main event scene after years and years of 
potential, potential since I was 15 years old and I started wrestling. Drew's the future, Drew's the future. And I got to the point where I was like, man, people are going to say Drew's the past and I was never the present. And I knew that before I walked to the ring for that moment with Brock. And when I came out, it was such a cool feeling. I wasn't doing anything significant at the time. I was winning some matches here and there. I could feel the crowd rumbling like this guy could take down Brock. And the way, like, nothing was planned. He took off his gloves, just was ready to go. And I called him a bitch, I believe. I don't know. I just said whatever came to me naturally. And then with the assistant ricochet, when I gave him that claymore, 40,000 people went absolutely insane. And it's the coolest claymore and reaction I've probably had in my life. Well, Drew, good luck this weekend. Can't wait to see the match. And thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. Thank you, buddy. Have, a good, have a good one. Thank you. That was Drew McIntyre, the man. Love chatting with that guy. Uh, I'll tweet out the picture of me drunkenly holding up the cup at PWG. It's a very good photo. I love posting it whenever I have the opportunity. Okay, make sure you subscribe to Add a Character on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever podcast platform you listen on. Also, make sure you follow WWE on Fox on all social media platforms, including YouTube, where you can watch the full video of this show every week. Okay, that's it. I'm done. Officially tapping out for now. Until next time. I'm Ryan Satin, and this is Out of Character. Download the all-new Fox Sports app now.